Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Tube to Table podcast, The Eating Instinct. Today, we're talking to Virginia Soul-Smith, writer, contributing editor to Parents Magazine, and author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. She's also the co-host of one of our favorite podcasts, Comfort Food, and she's a mom. And Virginia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We're so happy that you're here. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about you and your family and how you kind of got into the work that you're doing. Sure. Well, I think we should disclose that I know Jenny and Heidi from back when I was really in the trenches with my own feeding tube situation and sort of you know, so the thing about being a journalist and a mom is whenever you're in some parenting crisis, you can figure out a way to write about it and (laughs) then get to find experts and do lots of research and, you know, kind of work your way through it. So the backstory is I've been a journalist who writes about health and our relationship with food and our bodies for a really long time. But in the beginning of my career, I wrote mostly for women's magazines and I wrote a lot of very sort of rule-focused diet-type stories while kind of behind the scenes in an existential crisis about that and how I didn't feel really good about the advice we were putting out there. But I didn't start to think, you know, I was was sort of wrestling with it for a long time, but I didn't kind of get to the point where I am now until five and a half years ago when I became a mom for the first time and my daughter Violet was born. And this is where the story kind of comes into your guys' territory. So Violet was born with a rare set of congenital heart defects and we didn't have this diagnosed in utero and they didn't catch it when she was first born. So we took her home and I started breastfeeding And it was really hard and exhausting, of course, as breastfeeding is, but I sort of thought it was working. And then when she was four weeks old, she nearly died because her blood oxygen level dropped dramatically overnight. She went into massive heart failure and we had to rush to the hospital and have an emergency surgery to save her life. And that's when we began to discover, you know, this whole diagnosis with her heart and what that was going to mean, that it was going to mean multiple open heart surgeries over the course of several years, that it would be something we'd always be managing with her and kind of keeping an eye on. But what they really couldn't prepare us for at that point was the fact that it also meant she stopped eating, that that morning when I tried to nurse her, that was going to be really the last time that I fed my baby myself. And what happened was you know, what we understand now is that it was a combination of being so sick and in heart failure over a course of several days and weeks. And then also all the trauma she experienced, you know, necessary life-saving trauma, but all the tubes and suction and everything they did to her in the hospital, she just completely shut down about anything going in her mouth. And so we were on the feeding tube for the better part of two years. And it was really that experience of being pushed so totally outside the normal relationship with food, the relationship I thought I was going to have with feeding my baby and having to just start from scratch completely, which I know your listeners can totally relate to that feeling. That was really when I started to rethink a lot of my understanding about food. And that's what led me to write the book. 
it's such a great book and your, you know, Violet story, your story is, is an inspirational one for sure, but I know it, it didn't start there. It was, it was a really emotional journey, but I'm wondering when the tube got, like, does it even, did it, like when the tube got placed, it sounds like there wasn't really, like, were you aware that it was, was going to happen? I barely knew feeding? what a feeding tube was when mm-hmm. the tube went in. I mean, I couldn't have t- at that point told the difference between the feeding tube and her IV. Like there was so yeah. much happening in the hospital. You know, the, what happened was, so there was that first day where she went into, you know, really dramatic heart failure and she was rushed in, put on a ventilator after this, you know, trying to stabilize her. And then when that didn't work, rushed into this catheterization and then kept on a ventilator for, I think the next two days. And then once she was stable enough that they could, you know, wean her off the ventilator and she could start breathing on her own. Of course, at that point, she had lost a really substantial amount of weight. She'd actually lost weight over the previous two weeks when she was getting sicker and sicker in this very gradual way that we didn't recognize. And so the first symptom that something was wrong with her was we happened to be at a pediatrician checkup and they said, wait a second, she weighs less than she did at birth. Like what? what happened? She's a month old. So, you know, now after all of this intervention, she was really weak. And they said, you know, we have to put a feeding tube in because we need to start trying to regain some of that weight because she's going to have open heart surgery a week from now. And when a baby that small, you know, every ounce really matters. It really helps um, improve the outcome. So at that point, we thought it was just going to be a temporary measure. We thought it was, like I said, it really felt like just another thing they were doing along with running the IV fluids and all this other stuff that was happening. I barely understood. I had no idea that it was going to become a permanent way of life. It really was framed as this is just something we're doing between now and this next surgery. Sure. Then, and she obviously needed it. So why would you ask a question at that right. point? Right. I mean, I was just, you know, and I was saying, well, should I be breastfeeding? You know, and I, there was a sort of in the back of my head, I was like, I don't understand why they don't want, just want me to feed her. But a nurse said to me, like, look, she's really weak and this is safer right now. And, you know, and we did do some breastfeeding in those days leading up to the surgery, but they were trying to, you know, really regain her. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that all made total sense to me. Yeah. Then, Then after that first open heart surgery, so she was about five weeks old when she had that surgery, and within a couple of days, you know, again, she's on a ventilator, and there's the whole, you know, kind of coming back process of that initial recovery where no one's thinking about feeding because they can't, you know, eat at that point. But then I remember, and this isn't in the book, this isn't really something I've talked too much about, but I remember when it was about, you know, one or two or three days post-op, being at rounds that morning in the hospital And the doctor saying, okay, where are we on starting feeds? And the attending doctor looked at me and he said, well, why don't you just nurse her? And I was like, so relieved. I was like, oh, okay, yes, I can feed my baby. This will be great. This is what I'm here to do. You know, I've been pumping around the clock, trying to keep my supply up. It's dwindling, but we're, you know, we're trying, we're fighting for this. And he was like, yeah, just feed her. It'll be fine. Like the easiest thing in the world. Right. (laughs) And I really think he meant it kindly. And he was trying to sort of be like, I'm supporting this mom. Like, let's not over-medicalize this if we don't have to. Like, it made sense to try that first. But then when I went to do it, it was just (laughs) an abject failure. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was screaming and gagging and she couldn't latch. And it was so painful, Mm. emotionally painful. I mean, physically, it didn't feel great either. But that's, you know, it's not (laughs) another piece of it. And very, very quickly, they kind of all swarmed around and said, like, okay, you know, this is not, she's burning more calories in the effort to eat than she can possibly take in from nursing from you. So we have to put in another feeding tube. Mm -hmm. And that, so that was the feeding tube that went in and then didn't come back out. And at that point, 
it was presented very much as this is another temporary measure. This is going to be a couple of weeks and then, you know, she'll get her strength back. You'll keep nursing in the meantime. We'll work on bottle feeding. You know, it's going to be fine. This is, and I remember one feeding therapist in the hospital did say to me, you know, they can take a while to come, you know, to get off the tubes, but she, she's definitely, I don't know if she was trying not to sort of freak me out more, but she definitely didn't hard sell that fact. Yeah. So I really Mm -hmm. do feel like it went in without an exit strategy and without really preparing us for what it was going to be. And And so then, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering, like, not only about like what that long journey is going to be like, you weren't prepared for, but like (laughs) all that goes into that for a mom and for a dad, like, like what, like there was no, like nobody talked to you about how difficult that would be for you guys. No, no. And so, cause again, they, if they first said, you know, well, cause at that point in our hospital stay, we knew we were going to be there for another week or two while she was recovering. And so they were acting like it was going to be something that just happened in the hospital mm-hmm. and that she would be eating by the time she went home. And then we got to the point where she was ready to progress from the ICU to the floor, but she was still totally dependent on the tube. And I'm trying And, you know, I have journals from this time where I'm like, she nursed for nine minutes today. Maybe it's coming back. Okay, now today she only nursed four minutes. You know, I mean, it was this back and forth and lactation consultants and feeding therapists standing over me. I can remember them all sort of looming around. (laughs) And at one point my mom said, like, could you guys sit down? And they were like, well, we have to, we have to see her latch. We have to see the angle. So we really have to stand like this. And I was just like, how can anybody do something so hard (laughs) under those circumstances? There are three people like, you know, within inches of my boob right now. Right, you can't right. actually do this. How um, can you or the baby relax like right. that? Although you do, of course, understand they were trying to help. But right, they like, were trying to help. Yes, no, and they were lovely, like really invested in you know helping me. But it was just a really fraught. There was a lactation consultant I really resented, but the feeding therapists were really <laughs> wonderful. She just kept asking me if I was drinking enough water, and I was like, "Lady, <laughs> right? There's a lot more going on. It's a lot bigger than water. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean." Yeah, it was just, this is not, and I also, you know, I was waking up every two hours in the night to pump to try to keep up my supply. And I said to her, you know, do I have to keep waking up every two hours to pump? Because, you know, I was sleeping in the ICU with my baby who was also waking up very often. So I was basically not sleeping. And she looked at me and she said, well, how much sleep do you want to get? Oh my gosh. And I was like, all of it? I want all of the sleep. All of it. (laughs) There is. Send my way, please. Um, I mean, I'm like a shell of myself. So. So it was really fraught. And so, you know, after a couple of weeks in the hospital, they said, look, she's, you know, she's medically stable. She's meeting all the other markers we need. You can take her home, but you have to take the tube with you. And that was when we realized, okay, this is something different. And that's when they started to train us how to use the pump and how to, we, she was still on a nasal feeding tube at that point. So how to drop the tube ourselves and check the placement and that we would be doing all of this at home. And that was really hard because, you know, when people in your friends and family start hearing the baby's going home, they're thinking, hooray, she's going home, everything's fine. But Dan and I still say, you know, those months when we were first home after that first day were the hardest because we were, you know, we had a new baby. We barely knew where we were as parents and we're running a feeding tube. It's like basically a hospital in our house. And it was, that was a really, really brutal time. Yeah. People go to school for years and years to learn how right, to do that right. stuff. And there you had to like do this like hospital. Just boot camp. jump right in yeah. and figure it out. And, you know, that was when the tube started making her vomit a lot. So we had her throwing up all the time and worrying that we were losing like, you know, did she even get anything out of that feed? And, you know, all of that stuff that's really hard about living with a tube. Well, and I think like becoming a parent is hard enough, but then when you like have gone through such a traumatic thing with your child, and then you have this experience of having all these experts 
save her life, right? Like do this surgery and intervention that like completely saved her life and kept her safe. But then those same, like there's like this disconnect. I think it's like a universal story that Heidi and I hear about a lot where you get all the information about her heart that you need to get and medical stuff to keep her safe. But then you're like, home with a baby in a feeding tube. And like you said, there's no exit strategy. Yeah. And what worries me more than even the exit strategy is that there's no like discussion of like how hard it is, like when you can't feed your kid and what that, I I know a little bit about that from firsthand experience, but like also like, I don't know, I just feel like when you have sleep deprivation and you have trauma and you have all of that stuff, it just is this universal thing that we hear that people are sent home into this abyss of terrifying emotions that are, and then we're sleeping in shifts in her room, like on the floor of her room next to the crib so we could catch the vomit. You know, I was still waking myself up every two hours to pump because that lactation consultant made me feel so guilty for wanting to sleep. (laughs) And, you know, that was a huge piece of the struggle as, you know, fortunately I had some really great women in my life, my stepmom and my mom and my best friend saying to me, look, like you being well-rested and being there for your baby is more important than whether we can get your milk supply back. But but that was such a, you know, there's so much pressure. When you have your child's heart surgeon saying, oh, I really love breast milk for babies in recovery from heart surgery. You're like, okay, okay. Right. <laughs> what do I need? You know, and you know, and he meant well by it, but it was like, no, this is too much pressure. And I had to make a choice. I think when she was about three months in was when I stopped trying to nurse her directly because that was just clearly traumatizing both of us. And then around four or five months, I stopped finally trying to pump because I was getting like a teaspoon <laughs> pumping oh. session and it was clearly not worth it. But all of that, you know, it's so hard because you again have this roadmap of how you're told you can be the best mom. Mm-hmm. And then it's clear that none of that's really serving you or your baby, but you feel like this failure for stepping back from, you know, what everybody's telling you to do and realizing, you know, it was a really, it was a process to realize that actually my instincts here, you know, I had to follow my own lead and follow her lead and that that mattered more than what any rule book said about this. Yeah. Like the, it's such an incredible amount of pressure because you like get this information about what you should do. And then we like, you know, make that part of what we think our expectations of ourselves are. Mm-hmm. And then when it doesn't happen that way, there's no other map. Like, right. you don't like, no, there's nobody else talking about the, I mean, really, I mean, luckily I think we're now exposing ourselves to different voices around feeding kids, but, yes. but I also am a feeding therapist. So of course I sit at the center of it, but like for generally for parents, like you in that situation, if it doesn't work out the way that you pictured it, it doesn't mean that it's a failure. It's just like, you just don't have another map. So you're just like left there kind of floundering in so many ways. And that's so isolating and horrible. So how did you get, I'm just curious, how did you get from there, from those feeds clearly not working out to, you know, oral feeds that is like, right. like it, she wasn't having it, but she was pretty afraid. It sounds like, how did you get from that place to deciding that you wanted to try different stuff and get her moving so, in a direction? Yeah. I mean, I think in my heart, I was never willing to give up on the idea that Violet could be an oral eater Mm -hmm. because I knew she had done it in the first days of her life before she got sick. I knew that, that she, you know, had been able to do it. And I think it felt, and this, you know, I want to be careful how I say this because of course there are many children and adults who will never be oral eaters and who have a very full and wonderful life and can have a, you know, like tube feeding can be this magical thing. And we need to, you know, talk about that as well. And so I don't mean to say, it sounds very ableist to say that I really wanted to fight for my daughter's right to eat by mouth. But at the same time, I wanted to fight for that right because I felt like it had been sort of stripped away from us 
through all this trauma and that we needed, in order to heal from the trauma that we'd experienced, we needed to work towards this somehow, that we needed to sort of give this back to her, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of it was my own, my own images again of, you know, I wanted to be a mom who made birthday cakes and who, you know, I make really amazing pasta sauce. And the idea that my daughter would never eat that was like devastating to me, you know? So a lot of it was that, these experiences I wanted to give her. And of course, if it had been clear that she could never get there, we would have found other ways. But it is, you know, you have to find other ways to bond with your child at that point, because feeding is this huge bonding thing that we have with babies, and she got no comfort from it. So there was that whole piece of, you know, figuring out how to connect with her, which which we definitely, you know, we did. We were very bonded, you know, through this trauma, we were bonded. But, but I knew that I felt like it was something we wanted to fight for. And so, you know, everyone was very puzzled that she wasn't, you know, they said, yeah, this happens sometimes, but we, you know, she's doing so well, like by other measures, she should be getting back to eating. We don't really understand it. But our pediatrician said to us, you know, call early intervention, which is, you know, our state zero to three program. Like they have feeding therapy. And my goodness, we got so lucky. Now, knowing what I know about the landscape of the different types of feeding therapy out there, like we were so fortunate to be paired with a feeding therapist who took a very responsive feeding approach with us. And she was the first person we took her in. I remember it was Halloween. So Violet was like three and a half months old and we took her in to the session. And she was the first one who explained to us about the term oral aversion and that, yes, this was caused by the trauma she went through. And just hearing that was a huge relief because, you know, it was the first time someone articulated, like this thing happened to your baby and it's made this really hard for her, but that you could work through, you know, that you can get past that, you can heal from trauma. Mm -hmm. That was so helpful because I felt like, okay, I understand now you know, what this is. Because in the first weeks, you just have no idea. You're, you know, you're just totally blind. And so she started to work with us on just helping Violet get more comfortable. I mean, at that point, she couldn't handle things touching her cheek or even like, you know, things anywhere near her face. We're really, you know, so just working very, very gradually on helping her find like find that more pleasurable and, you know, like the, oh, a toy, you know, kissing your cheek can be funny, not scary, you know, that kind of thing. But she also was the one who, when Violet was five months old, said, you know, I think you need to put away the bottle, just try, you know, trying the bottle over and over is only re-traumatizing her. And I think we need to think about the permanent, the gastric feeding tube, the G-tube, because we need to get this off her face. You know, if you have a kid who is traumatized by something coming near her mouth, a tube that goes through her nose down the back of her throat is only sort of re-traumatizing that, especially when you're doing the bi-weekly tube drops, which every parent who's done that knows is just horrifying. You know, it's really bad. So plus just the idea as an adult of having, I have a colleague in Europe who allowed himself to be tube fed. He had an NG tube inserted and he not only reported kind of what you talk about in your book about that irritation and Mm -hmm. that kind of burning sensation in the back of his throat, but also just kind of generally feeling groggy and full which I thought was really interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. I mean, you have food hitting your gut that you haven't processed to get there. I mean, it is, you know, it's a very strange experience. So, so that's when we moved to the G tube and, you know, that was a really hard moment because it felt like this big failure, but now I know, and I talk to other parents say, you know, sometimes get emails from people saying, you know, we're at this precipice of, do we do the G tube? And I always say like, yes, do it (laughs) because the surgery itself is not fun. You know, it's a recovery. Of course, that's a lot to put a little kid through, but 
you know, getting that off her face, being, you know, being able to free her from those weekly tube drops was, I don't think she would have gotten back to oral eating without that, to be honest. Yeah, we we often make a similar recommendation because for some kids, the G-tubes make a world of difference. Sometimes kid, people come to us at that intersection where they're like trying to decide what to do next and mm-hmm. they're ready to wean. And so it makes sense to give it a try right. to do the G-tube. But that makes sense. Yeah, we yeah. were nowhere near no. that place. So and, and we then, knew we needed that. Yeah, so like to get away from that yucky sensation. And then did she stop? Like she she felt better. She clearly felt better. Yeah, we saw, you know, certain milestones, trying to remember specifically what they were. But, you know, I think, well, you know, because she had the NG tube in, we were swaddling her like much of the day because we were so scared about her ripping out the tube all the Mm -hmm. time as she started finding her hands and reaching for her face. And she did that many times. And so we were it wasn't just this thing on her face. We were limiting her entire ability to like grow and develop at that point as a baby because the tube feeds took 45 minutes. That happened, you know, however many thousands of times a day. (laughs) And, you know, and so for during that time, she was like immobilized in a bouncy seat because we figured out that like her being still and swaddled was like the only way to minimize the odds of vomiting during a tube feed. Like we couldn't move her at all. It seemed like I couldn't hold her during a tube feed because it seemed like she would immediately vomit. Mm. And then, you know, just trying to keep track of the tube all the time, we were putting socks on her hands, all of this, you know, really limiting her movement. So once we got to the G tube, we could stop like, you know, strapping her down. <laughs> you know, we yeah. could let her start. So gross motor skills started to happen then because she could move her hands more freely. She could move her body more freely. So all of that was much, much easier to live with. And so then we were able to start. And I think we really then started to see her become more comfortable with exploring. You know, she was not a baby who ever brought things to her mouth, put her own hands in her mouth, brought toys to her mouth. And I can't remember how long it took after the G-tube went in, but we finally started seeing more interest in oral exploration once that was there. Yeah. I'm curious now. So she's got her G-tube. She's feeling a little bit more comfortable. She's showing what we as feeding therapists would consider some of these kind of pre-feeding readiness skills. Mm-hmm, which is great, mm-hmm. like Mostly just that she's more comfortable. Right. And kind of that autonomy that comes along with moving more freely tends to be related to helping kids feel just generally more comfortable in their own skin so that they can sure. try new things. Yeah. So what, what kind of, so I'm guessing you guys start asking yourselves and others, like what's next and what kind of support, what kind of answers do you get at that point from your medical team about learning to eat? Like I'm wondering pediatricians, GI or cardiology, even do you get any information from them? They were pretty hands-off about the whole thing. And I have to say that was both good and bad. I mean, they really trusted us and our feeding therapist to kind of set the course, which I really appreciated. And especially as I've heard from many families who doctors, you know, sort of actively block attempts at weaning or that kind of thing. And that was not our experience at all. But on the other hand, they just had nothing to offer. They hadn't, they didn't know, you know, and they were honest about they didn't know, but they also didn't know and I needed answers. So that was frustrating, you know, in and of itself. But the other thing we had going on was Violet had another open heart surgery coming up when she was six months old. So even getting the the G-tube placed, I think at five months, we couldn't really jump in. We knew we couldn't jump into really active eating until we got through the next open heart surgery. And that ended up having a pretty long, she was in and out of the hospital for about four months. So that was, you know, and that was really frustrating because in the hospital setting, they didn't care about oral eating at all, at all. So they were constantly putting her on TPN, 
you know, she would actually show interest in drinking, but they would say, no, you can't get, you know, based on what other medical stuff was going on. Nope. She has to be totally MPO, no foods or liquids. And now I suddenly have a kid who's interested in drinking. (laughs) It's so hard to watch that happen. Are you kidding me? I have to take it away. You know, so we were really messing with her hunger instincts again during that whole you know, next round of medical hurdles. And one of them, I would say the most frustrating experience I had with a doctor was during that time, again, she's vomiting constantly in the hospital. Whenever we do have her on feeds, she's vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. And at this point, I started researching about blenderized diets and talking to some parents who told me that they really helped with vomit, you know, with reducing vomit. And I really wanted to try it. And, you know, I thought like this, how much worse could it be? You know, the formula, we've tried like a million different kinds of formula and that's not helping. And I talked to, you know, a gastroenterologist was called in to consult on her case because the vomiting was so bad and cardiology was pretty freaked out by it. And she was just saying, no, absolutely not. You know, you cannot go to, cannot try a blenderized diet. And I said, you know, why is it like not medically safe for her? Like, what's the concern here? And she said, well, it can clog the feeding tube. And I just felt like that is a piece of machinery. Like right. we are talking about a person. Like right, this right, is, right. no, that cannot be the reason. Like we can change that. That should be like, we will blend it thinner. Like this is, you know, like this is not the answer. There has to be a solution to that. And I said, well, what about, you know, at this point she's nine or 10 months old. And I said, you know, well, she's almost a year. Like normally you'd be switching away from formula at the year mark with a kid. And she's like, nope, she'll switch to a toddler formula and then she'll switch to a childhood formula and an adult formula. And she mapped out my daughter's entire life on formulas. And I just, I said, that is that you don't know us. This you've met us ten minutes ago. You're saying she's going to be on formula the rest of her life. You have no interest in her becoming an oral leader. I mean, that was one of the moments that really sticks with me because this doctor was only focused on what would make her job as easy as possible. You know, how do we control? It's the formula makes it so easy to track her nutrient intake and her calories, and that's what matters. And it was just metrics to her. It was just this is yeah. this is the way to go. And she could, you know, that yeah. was. Yeah, it's so hard. And we're going to just because I think a lot of people are really hungry for that information, too, is like, first of all, you do a great job of describing in the book. It's touching like not like it gives you also some it lets you feed your kid the food you want to feed them. And so that's worth it by itself. Right. But then also, in addition to that, we'll have some stuff in an cup- upcoming episode on blenderized diets. Oh, I'm glad you, it. yeah, because it's a really complicated thing. I'm glad you guys are going to get is. into that. It's yeah. not easy. So we'll talk a little bit about some of like the prepackaged stuff and then some of the do-it-yourself stuff, which I know you did. And and then also kind of like what people's experiences have been, both for parents mm-hmm. and how it feels, like in the story you tell in the book, but then also the kid's side of it and, and kind of how it affects them physically. Yeah which yeah, is really right. huge. And so we're, we're going to get into that because I think it's a universally, I think a lot of people have questions about it. And I think a lot of people find that maybe doctors are either giving crappy answers like the one you got or <laughs> they don't know maybe. And, so, yeah. and it is harder for, especially for kids with cardiac stuff, it can be harder to kind of like measure the balance. But once kids are yeah. stable, there are resources out there so that you can yeah. keep kids safe, make sure they're getting what they need. If that's something some people, there's nothing wrong with formula. If that feels right for you, that's okay too. But like, there's a lot more information out there than most doctors or parents or feeding therapists even really have access to. Yeah. And I just want to say, I mean, I am a hundred percent pro formula all the way. It was just this doctor's dismissiveness about it yeah. that was so devastating, you know, and I completely understand you know, the blender diet. It's a ton of work. So having yeah. done, ultimately done it, I can say it's a ton of work. It doesn't work for everyone. So no. I'm glad you guys and- are going to get into the nuances of that. 
We are, we are. And we'll talk about like different things that have worked for different families. So then you put on your hat, you put on your mom, like a mom on a mission hat to help your kid get, enjoy food like you do. And then you combine that with the skills that you have as a journalist and you start looking out there at options. And, And like, what, would you mind telling us a little bit about what felt right and what felt wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, our feeding therapist that we got through early intervention was great. And she, you know, never pushed us to do anything we weren't comfortable with, you know, but she also was very clear that while she felt like she could make a lot of progress on Violet's oral motor skills, you know, actually weaning her off the tube was not something she felt super comfortable doing without, you know, a bigger team. So, because, you know, as an EI professional, she sees all kinds of different kids, but we were a pretty unique case, and especially with the cardiac piece. So I did start to do research on, you know, various hospital programs. And that's when I really started to understand this kind of great debate within pediatric feeding of the behavior therapy model versus the responsive feeding model. And I was pretty, you know, I will be very blunt. I was pretty horrified very quickly by behavior therapy and what I saw there. And I did, you know, I pitched my editor at the New York Times Magazine. I said, there's this whole debate going on on how you help these kids. I want to study it and do a story about it. And so like this is the perk of being a journalist. I got to travel around and watch lots of different feeding therapy sessions, including you guys, leaning the amazing Joey. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, seeing it all up close and personal, I felt like this is, you know, the behavior model was all about external motivation and just, you know, training the kid to eat for rewards and all of that. And having come from my background writing diet articles, it felt creepily familiar. I felt like here we are just teaching these kids to eat according to this set of external rules, not trusting them to know their own bodies, to listen to their hunger and fullness cues, which I knew Violet had had, you know, in the first few weeks of her life. And, you know, it just everything about it felt wrong to me in that sense. I didn't want that for her. Particularly, I didn't want one of the programs where, you know, the parents are in the sessions and it's all very regimented that just, I knew that, you know, if you have a kid who's stopped eating because of trauma, the therapy has to be really gentle. It can't be this sort of ritualized, this is one size fits all. This is how we learn teach these kids to eat approach. So I knew that wasn't going to work for us. And then we were fortunate. So again, through early intervention, we were able to get paired with a dietitian who did have experience weaning kids off feeding tubes. And she, again, came from the more responsive feeding side of things. She really understood how to do the blenderized diet, understood what, you know, so she could give me the recipes and we started to work together on that. And then, you know, when it came to actually weaning the tube, she, her and our feeding therapist together were the team we used to start that process. And when you started that, what, like, did hunger play a role? Yes. So what we did was, it was very gradual. You know, we got, we waited till we were at the point where Violet was, I call it recreational eating. You know, she had gotten over, she liked exploring food. You know, I have pictures of her like covered in pasta sauce. She wasn't eating any of the pasta sauce, but she liked, you know, like, mushing it around and making a mess with it. She figured out, you know, very early it was clear we couldn't spoon feed her because that, again, you know, she had to have a lot of control around what went in her body, which makes total sense given her story. It's still true at five and a half. And I think we'll always be how she is, how she is. Um, (laughs) She needs that control and that's totally fair. And so, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, pouches were great for us because she could self-feed the pouch, like the applesauce pouch or the baby food pouch. Pouches get a bad rap a lot of the time. They were our, like, they got us off the tube. I mean, because she could really 
totally control it. And we could see what she was getting, you know, which sort of reassured everyone on the calorie piece of it. And so that we, so she was at a point where she was taking like maybe one applesauce pouch a day and maybe eating like a little piece of cheese. I mean, not meaningful intake, but enough that we could see the skills were there. She could swallow safely, all of that. And so then we started dropping one feeding tube meal at a time. So I think she, at that point, she was having like a 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3, 6. And so we dropped that 9 a.m. feed and gave it like two weeks to see, you know, would she start to eat more at lunch if she had all morning to get hungry? So that was definitely how we how we moved through it. And, you know, at first she did not. She was just very grouchy and miserable and wanted to be held a lot, didn't know what to do with that <laughs> hunger feeling. And she did lose a little bit of weight in the first two weeks, but she also, I think in the first month, but she also like grew an inch. So, you know, Maggie, our dietitian said, okay, you know, let's keep going. Like she's obviously, you know, she's not totally plateaued. And then I think when we dropped a second feed, and I can't remember if that was the 6 a.m. or the noon that we dropped, but I think once we dropped those two feeds, we started to see more intake. And then it just kind of went from there. Huge. So yeah. I'm wondering, was there a moment when you, I don't know, like, was there a moment when she became an eat, like when she, she obviously gradually ate more and you started to realize that this was really mm-hmm. happening, but was there ever a moment, I think you talked about in the diner, like something yes. with grilled cheese. Yes. I don't know if you could tell that part of the story. Of course. I love that story. So yeah, yeah. when she was I'm trying to think how old she was, 18 months old, maybe we had, we hadn't dropped all the tube feeds yet. We still had one or two per day, but we had long enough windows now where we could actually leave the house without bringing everything with us, which, you know, is huge. Like I had taken this feeding tube, like hiking through Maine the summer before, like this feeding tube was always with us. So the idea that we could go out and not have tubes and syringes and the pump and all this stuff, you know, and we went out, I think we'd gone for a hike in the morning and then we went to the diner to get lunch and we ordered her a grilled cheese sandwich and we're kind of thinking, well, she might just melt down and we're going to need to run home and get the tube and, you know, but we'll see what happens. And it was this beautiful thing. Like Dan cut up her sandwich into little postage stamp size pieces. And she sat there and ate the whole thing, except the crusts, you know, like toddlers do. (laughs) And I just looked around and there were all these other families like having their Sunday morning brunches and, you know, pancakes and burgers and whatever. And, you know, we were finally doing it. We were finally... I'm getting teary again just thinking about it. Um, I got teary. I, li- I was reading it again this morning. It went right through me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was such a cool moment. And, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the end. The end, there were still some ups and downs after that. But that was the moment where it really crystallized for me. Like, yes, this kid is going to be an oral leader. She can do this. And we just have to trust her. We have to follow her lead because she, she you know, not that she consciously knew how to get us there, but she, her body knew. She knew. Yeah. How to get there. Mm-hmm. So will you tell us a little bit about what she's into these days? Like food wise and other food-wise? Um, otherwise too. <laughs> chocolate ice cream with rainbow sprinkles. Um oh, she has cheese. <laughs> <laughs> she has a whole plan for her. She's turning six in August and she's planning to have ice cream for breakfast in bed. Popcorn for lunch and ice cream again for dinner. <laughs> Divine. <laughs> That's awesome. So she's got that whole all mapped out. And she, you know, she likes a lot of really, she likes all the kind of typical kid foods of mac and cheese, grilled cheese, what have you. But she has some quirky taste too. She really loves pesto. It's actually her favorite kind of sauce for pasta is pesto sauce. And so that's, you know, that's really fun. She likes to help me make it. And she asks for that probably almost every night. Can't we just have pesto pasta? <laughs> so she loves that. She loves, and fruit has always been, you know, my kids 
both of them will inhale, I don't know how many, how many hundreds of dollars I spend a month on blueberries <laughs> and raspberries, they will inhale pints of those. And, you know, she's lukewarm on many vegetables, but she does love um, what she calls the soft, wet, cold carrots that they served at her preschool. <laughs> so I think that's like freezer carrots. <laughs> that's hysterical. And I've made them for her at home and she's like, they're almost as good as at preschool. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, and the cool thing is now that she's in kindergarten and she's buying lunch at school, I think she's trying lots of different things there. You know, she kind of has her own independent food life that's coming. So she'll sometimes come home and report really loving some random thing that I would have been hesitant to try at home. But at school with her friend, she's she's got that confidence and that sense of adventure, which is really neat to see developing. Oh. I mean, I think she'll always be a more cautious eater than, say, her younger sister, who was totally typically developing and, you know, is really like ate sashimi the other night for dinner you know Violet's oh not God. gonna yeah I mean b- you know this is just kids are different oh, right. um, they are. and they're both really listening to their bodies and that's what I love about it is you know like Violet is clearly she may always be more cautious um, she's not really into most meats like certain textures are still if it's hard to chew she's you know she's that's tricky for her and it probably stems from this early stuff you know that'll kind of be with her but she's a completely capable oral eater very enthusiastic about her favorite foods and, you know, really, really listens to her body. You know, she self-regulates beautifully. So I'm, you know, couldn't be happier about that. That's huge. And and that whole, like following her lead and letting her trust and listen to her body and having yeah. that kind of like positive outlook on food really is what's going to set her up for, right. for the right. lasting thing, as you know, better than, than we do. It's just, it's, it's really phenomenal. It's, it's so exciting to hear. I mean, we, we, when we were, Heidi was weaning Joey in Illinois, when you came and watched for the book, she was still being tube fed. And we remember hearing her story then yeah. and hearing about where you guys were. And then we've touched base, of course, over the years, but to hear the story about the, the crust and to hear the story about <laughs> pesto, it's just, it's the best. Well, and you guys were awesome. Cause I remember you gave me so much helpful advice and you were the ones who said like you can do this like she's there she's there you know because Mm -hmm. it feels so you're you feel like you're on the edge of this cliff when you start the wean and you're like are they really going to feel hunger is she really going to know what to do about it and it was so helpful to have you all you know I was able to go home and say like look like yeah (laughs) she's really close she was right there yeah just have to kind of jump off this cliff together and you know it was you did you yep. did. And it was so worth yeah. it. Virginia, thank yeah. you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to share Violet's story. And we hope that everybody that's listening gets the eating instinct. It's really a phenomenal take, not only in the retelling of Violet's story, but on so many different experiences of people and kind of food culture in America. It's it's really, really great. And the Comfort Food Podcast is a great listen for anybody who's feeding kids. So uh, we really appreciate you being here today and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good one. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.